On today's episode, I spoke with Jake Madoff about paid media trends and growth marketing in 2023 and beyond. Jake has led growth for several multi-million dollar startups, including Bespoke Post, and he's particularly in touch with paid media and ad creative. So let's dive right in. He's got a bunch of tactical tips for us. If you wouldn't mind taking me through the, the key points of kind of your growth marketing journey for what's happened that's led you to where you are now, and then feel free to tell us kind of what you focus on now as well, like what, what your work looks like day to day in 2023. For sure. Yeah, so uh, my name is Jake. I'm a full stack growth marketer. Um, and that journey began with founding a company, an iOS app in 2015 called TradeMade. And that was a, a barter and trade app. So people would upload items and services. You could swap and trade with people real time in your area. And it was actually a pretty fun app to work on. And uh, we got some funding for that and, and learned a lot about like the app building process. But along the way, realized you have to scale a company. And in order to do that, you have to learn growth marketing. And at that time, growth marketing was pretty new. Facebook was kind of just beginning. There was really only Google search and SEO as main drivers for growth. Um, and I was leading growth there. So taught myself a lot about technical digital marketing, uh, build that up, and then moved on to Spoke Post. Um, there, it was a team of just myself and another person running growth. Uh, and we were only spending maybe about 300,000 a month in paid media. And I worked there for about five years leading growth uh, with another team member. By the time I left, we were spending around $2 million a month. We had a team of about seven people. Um, and all that while, I was doing freelance inside. So I was working with a number of clients across B2B, B2C, subcontracting for agencies, and built up a, a really interesting portfolio that I enjoyed working with, um, where I was working on paid social, paid search, OTT, programmatic display. Um, and I found that really enjoyable. And then kind of along the way there, I worked with some other big companies, like director level growth marketing roles, and then built up that client portfolio and just have been really doing freelance and kind of moved into freelance fully uh, a few years ago where I've just been working uh, exclusively with uh, companies and in a contract basis. And it's been a lot of fun to do that. Where? Yeah, so looking at, you you worked for several startups, so looking kind of back into the past of what growth looked like then, mm -hmm. contrasting that with what you would do now if you were if you were in a startup or if you were building your own thing, what yeah. does that contrast look like between the, the tactics, strategies that you would care about now versus then? Yeah, um, I'd say like over the last seven years or so, um, attribution was really in its nascent stages where you were kind of more relying like just on the platform itself to determine the performance of the campaigns. Um, and also creative was a little bit more of kind of like a intuition plus data. <laughs> now attribution is really important because you're usually running a multi-channel split in your acquisition marketing. And it's important to use some third party tool to back into what channels performing well, but also at the campaign level, what's doing well. Um, and on the creative side, creative is the biggest lever. Um, and seeing the evolution of creative over the last seven years have been, I think, probably the most prominent to me, where almost every creative decision now, if your goal is direct response conversion marketing, is almost surgical. What elements performed well? What asset uh, performed well? Specifically, what element or headline in that asset performed well, what combinations performed well, 
and then building out almost a campaign structure to reflect that creative testing, where you can almost have campaigns dedicated to creative testing, some dedicated to evergreen creative. Um, and you're really almost monitoring these. And, and kind of what I talk about in pitch is that I have a creative scorecard that I build whenever I work with a new brand or a new company where we have elements that do work and ones that don't. So if we have like a 10 item checklist, we need to make sure that that creative team, if they mill make a new batch of ads, has seven out of those 10 items checked. If not, it may not do well. I think that's been like a pretty big change over that, that period of time. Yeah, let, let's click on that a little bit more. Um, if you're looking at creative coming onto your table, what are yeah. the elements that you really focus on most? Like what, what are the priority level three things that you're looking for for every piece of creative or every campaign that you know will at least give it a chance to work? For sure. Yeah, I would say in terms of image and video, so with image creative, um, what I've seen do really well is no longer should you just have an image creative like a lifestyle or a product shot. Almost always, if you're running an image uh, creative, it should have a headline overlay and a subhead. Um, adding like text overlays on image creative has not only registered that creative as a net new asset within the algorithm, but they've also um, allowed for a lot more scale within that certain type of creative because you can almost iterate that on that one type of creative with a different framing or a different styling of the headline. And it, it really does scale like a one type of concept really well. Um, and it's also low, low, low effort, high impact, which is, you know, every, every brand wants to <laughs> um, And on the video side, um, UGC still seems to be kind of the top dog there. Um, whenever I'm running UGC, I kind of build it out as in, if you imagine the asset is 30 seconds long, think of the first zero to 10 seconds as that intro or hook that you can kind of swap in and out almost like a module sofa in a way where you swap in and out that first intro and then the latter 20 seconds or so you kind of just stick on next to it and what that allows for is just really fast iteration high velocity of creative um and also that that hook of course is a, a big indicator of performance versus you know, the lad, latter 20 seconds of a new creative yeah, yeah so on on a static side you brought up the importance of having text overlay give a little bit more context as opposed to just putting an image on there how do you think about copy on those uh, specifically when you're when you're dealing with maybe you need a caption but then you have the overlay how should those the copy and those play together how similar should they be and and what how do you think about writing you know great copy for an image so that it'll fit but have enough context for sure um i would say Typically when I start, I'll run like a dynamic unit where I have five or so headlines with a given piece of creative. Um, so almost always we're building multiple creatives and then testing. Usually after two to four weeks, you have a certain variation that's emerged as a winner. Um, based on that, you can kind of pull, let's say the top few ones and say, there's a theme here that worked well. Maybe you're testing a value prop in that headline between affordability and maybe quality or convenience. If the affordability value prop work the best, you can kind of iterate on that headline and build more types like that. Um, so almost always I'll start with kind of a, an assortment of different headlines and, and, and value props to where I know exactly what variable I'm testing in that copy, uh, and then iterate on that value prop or style that worked really well. Um, and I guess with, to your, to your first part of your question with, is it okay to almost like duplicate the same 
headline as a copy in the ad unit versus headline on the actual media. Generally, I have seen it do do pretty well, um, especially if it's like a top headline. Um, I think it may just be that people are really looking more at like the actual unit itself as like the media and maybe just glancing at the headline. Um, so I'm actually okay and almost an advocate for having the same headline in the media as you do in, in the ad unit itself, especially if it's a top performer. Yeah. Coming back to a point that you had brought up earlier around attribution and its increasing importance. Yeah. How do you think about, especially with paid media, you're, you're running so many different variations, at least you're trying to, if you're doing it well, mm -hmm. how do you think about the qualitative side of measuring? So let's say we're talking about isolating variables across copy, uh, creative mm -hmm. imagery, whatever. How do you look at the qualitative side of that and kind of make assumptions on what you should double down on and what you should yeah. maybe move away from? Yeah, for sure. So I would say even with the qualitative, we do try and like, let's say the, the quantitative is looking at click-through rate or CPA based on um, certain variations of messaging. And the qualitative is the sentiment or styling of that messaging between different variations and how they perform versus CTA, um, uh, CTR and CPA. Within that qualitative assessment, um, that is really like working with your creative team and seeing and say, okay, it looks like um, this certain style of messaging perform really well. Maybe the next step there is adding in like an emoji to, to, the, to the headline or putting some other subhead on it below to reinforce a type of messaging. Because um, it really, that data can only tell you so much about, we know like if it has a high click-through rate or a good CPA, we can t say, okay, it's a high-performing asset, but that why it's a high-performing asset, that, that's really where you can start to iterate and find more. Because if you can answer the why, you know, why is the, the affordability value prop performing well? Once you can answer that question, you can really start to build more styles or variations on that affordability. Um, as an example, um, one of the brands through Marketer, for example, which is every table that I'm working with now, um, we've done different uh, styles of testing at like the affordability level. Their pricing is really competitive in the suite of uh, like meal prep subscription boxes and meal prep order and pickup services. Um, that qualitative aspect came in where we were like, okay, how can we really start to think about um, putting this value prop in different contexts and different styles? So we did like split screen, split screen price comparisons where we had one brand and our brands on one side and talking about that. We did like the slash value uh, where we have like a price slash that and then put the original price. And we tried doing it where you would almost do like the equivalency where you would say, you know, this price gets you this much. Look at all the value here. Um, so like those qualitative aspects of how do you different ways of like uh, almost illustrating a value prop that can also provide a lot of scale, not only in terms of net new creative, but also hopefully finding a winner that that even beats your control. Yeah. So one, one of the biggest questions kind of moving forward here, I, I know that companies are going to have is around how much on one platform and how much across how many different platforms. That's mm -hmm. that's always going to be the big one. So. What are your thoughts on that? If you're consulting a new brand and maybe they haven't even done one channel really well for paid media or for anything for that matter, how do you think about mastering one channel versus trying to diversify immediately and then 
kind of figuring out what works from there. What's, what's your approach on the market, sure. the mix of that? It's our question. Um, I'd say the biggest indicator is your budget. So very rarely would I recommend a brand that's spending less than 5,000 months, for example, trying to split that into Meta and Google. You, you really want to pick kind of one platform. And if you really, let's say you run on, on Google and you're really only spending 5K a month uh, and you're not seeing success, I would almost recommend doing like an on-off A-B testing style where like you turn on Meta, turn off Google, then month two, vice versa, and month three, and then kind of build it that way. Because it, it really is hard to get substantial learnings with a small budget. When you have more of a budget, you can almost think about it as brackets. If you're spending, you know, two to, to five, five to 15, 15 to 50, that opens up more channel testing. Because again, you don't want to split your budget too thin. It'll take tests that you're running longer to accumulate an exit learning at that point. Um, so budget is definitely the biggest indicator. I'd say for your average brand that's probably spending in the tens of thousands per month, um, you want to start with your core channels, that being Meta and Google. And to drill down even further into that, having in Meta, kind of just your core setup, a prospecting, retention, retargeting campaign. And then within Google, a few search campaigns and a Pmax campaign, and probably the majority of your budget going into that performance match or Pmax campaign. And I think once you kind of find that CPAs are starting to increase there, you're starting to scale maybe 20% month over month, and you're seeing CPA raise, and let's say you're not really seeing the efficiency gain, then you can introduce a new channel. And maybe that new channel could be TikTok, for example. And by that point, maybe you have a bit more budget, you can test it out and see, okay, we're getting a halo effect. Because typically with TikTok, if you launch that, the reach is so substantial and the CPM is so low, where once you launch TikTok, you'll see usually kind of a, a rising um, tied across your other channels. Your your paid social will look a little bit better and your paid search will look a little bit better. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. Um, so you, you had talked about core channels, getting that right first. Flip yeah. side of that, if we're talking about the channels that are more cherry on top or, or in other words, channels you don't have to do, but you still like, wh what would be one of those, one of your favorite channels that's kind of a cherry on top? That's a great question. Um, I would say podcasts are probably that channel for me. Um, podcasts sometimes have a minimum engagement of 15K to 25K per buy. Um, and, but they're really fun to do and they can have a really significant impact. Uh, they can also have a, an impact not only just as a, like an evergreen channel, but um, even just doing like one big buy on a podcast every quarter can really help find like a new audience and bring in a, a new kind of segment for your pixel to learn from. So yeah, for me, I would say that would be podcasts and just finding like a really good host. Because when you're working with a podcast agency, I've worked with like Veritone and other large podcast agencies. Um, the host read, you know, the, there's a lot to go into making sure it's a market fit, making sure your, your demos, like your baseline demographics align. But the host read is by far the biggest lever for the performance of that podcast. If your host read is enthusiastic, ends with a good click-through rate, they're talking about like using that product uh, in a way that feels very personal and very real. Um, it, it can perform really well when you're, when you're doing the right kind of attribution at channel. Yeah. 
Yeah, it almost makes me think of like uh, how Mr. Beast will integrate it into a video like very organically as opposed to somebody just reading it raw with no emotion and that, that really does not compel you to buy it all. Um, I, yeah, I like the podcast by and, and I'm curious if, if we pivot a little bit to overall trends, I'm sure you have a lot of opinions here, especially now yeah. we're in the age of AI, there's a lot of stuff that you can do, a lot of things you probably shouldn't do, but you can do in, in marketing. When you're looking at trends going forward, let's say in the next year or couple of years, what are you actually excited about that you think is a trend that's meaningful and positive? Yeah. And I've been having this conversation a lot recently. Um, I'm excited by the, this will sound almost like a somewhat of an odd answer, but I'm, I'm excited to see that search is no longer being centralized around, rather, there are more players in the space of search now than five years ago. So a big trend I've been saying is Google, I think, is realizing that there are other players in the search game, i.e. Amazon and TikTok. And those two platforms really are taking up a significant share of search where younger demos are beginning their search or even within like the consideration phase in the funnel of their search for a new product on TikTok. They'll go and look at a product, search that on TikTok to see, okay, how is it being used? What influencer has used it? Let me watch a review of the product. And then almost look at whatever links that influencer is posting and go through there. So they're almost you know, sidestepping Google in a way uh, and, and going to TikTok and same thing with Amazon where, you know, we know the staff that um, if not like one of the first channels or, you know, high second is beginning your, your e-com based search on Amazon versus Google. I've been really interested to see that play because I've been seeing Google as a titan of advertising starting to make big pivots with Performance Max and now with Demand Gen. Demand Gen being their newest campaign build where they're running across Discovery and YouTube. And it's basically just combining those assets and they're now trying to compete with paid social. Because Demand Gen is, if you're running across Discovery and YouTube, it's basically like you're running across feed and story, like on Meta or just across story, uh, like on TikTok. And so I'm, I'm excited to see that trend. Like how will Google start to find like a new product and a, a new type of campaign build um, and uh, how that evolution will pay out because they're a massive company. They've kind of set standards in advertising. So I think a lot of, if you kind of look at them for trends changing in the market, you'll kind of start to learn about how other players are moving too. Yeah. What do you think is the best case scenario for using AI in growth? Because like, obviously there are people that could spam that and they mm -hmm. could just create all kinds of really bad creative or however they want to use it. But what's like in your, in your mind, the best case for using AI in growth? I'd say the best case right now is for high velocity ad copy. Um, ad copy can sometimes be a burden and I'll, I'll sometimes use like ChatGPT4 to uh, concept some ad copy. And sometimes I'll just take it almost like 90% what it wrote and then use that. But the velocity of it is, I think, the most important feature and what's been most helpful for me right now with growth marketing where you know, we can, we can build up and, and launch new versions to tests, new value props, et cetera, and get learnings really quickly. On the kind of less front-end side, the more back-end side of AI, um, when I talk with product managers at Google and Meta, the way that targeting an AI is being used is 
even more complicated and interesting, of course, than just kind of more generative AI tools where they're finding new ways to target, let's say, generally speaking, lookalike users or similar users to those that have purchased. Um, where now these new campaign builds, you almost give them signals. So you say, here's my customer list. Here's a, a broad list of keywords. And then their AI will try and fill in that gap between your customer lists, your in-market segments that you put in, your keywords that you put in. And they'll just say, okay, we got this from here and we'll try and find the best purchasers at, at whatever bid or budget you give it. Um, so that's also been really interesting in seeing like how efficiently AI has been able to fill in those gaps and find new audience based on certain signals that you give it. Uh, and it's kind of less specific than before those signals. Last question here, and then we'll, then we'll hop off. Um, I ask everybody here that comes on the pod, tools. Um, everybody's got their own tool belt, things they like to use. What are a couple of tools that you use for you know paid paid ads, paid media that you really couldn't live without if they went away? That's a great question. And I'll say I'll say ChatGPT four. That one has been helpful as of late. Um, I'll also say as of late um, on the on the trend of uh, like high velocity video creatives, it's kind of hit or miss, but it's been pretty valuable as of late is Billow. Um, it's kind of like a, a pretty fast UGC marketplace. Not really a tool per se, but you can kind of use it like a creative tool. Um, and then uh, there are other attribution type uh, tools I have worked quite well in the past. Uh, tools like Triple Whale and Rockerbox have been uh, pretty valuable for, for attribution modeling. Yeah, but I love Google Sheets. I'd, I'd say like Google Sheets is probably still my favorite. 